0: Bibles tonight to the book of Ephesians and we're in chapter 3 and if you need a Bible just raise your hand and the ushers will pass them along. I realize some of you need pillows raise your left hand if you need a pillow. Just joking. And we'll be picking up in verse 14 of chapter 3 tonight. In the first verse of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul began a thought. And as is common to preachers, his thought was interrupted by another thought. And thus he was sidetracked from communicating the initial thought that he was seeking to bring across. And he communicated a second thought that was a precursor to the thought that we get to study tonight. And so what we pick up with as we start in verse 14 is a thought that began back in verse 1. Paul writes in verse 14 there in chapter 3 and he says, "...for this cause..." Now, if you just glance over with your eyes and you look at the first three words of chapter 3, he says there, for this cause. And, And you get the idea that it was what he was wanting to say in verse 14 that he was starting to say in verse 1, but then he got off on this tangent of explaining something to us. It was a very good tangent, a very relevant tangent as far as, what he wanted to say in order to prepare his audience for what he is going to say, or rather, going to pray, in verses 14 through 21. By saying, for this cause, not only do we see that he's, you know, going back to what he began with, but what we also understand is that there is a reason When you see those words, for this cause, it's essential to understand what was said prior to it, so that you know what cause it was that is motivating what he's about to say. So what is the cause? What cause, Paul? and, And you know that in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been highlighting for us everything that we have in Christ Jesus. The glorious treasures and riches of God that have been provided through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we have been redeemed, that we have been chosen, that we've been adopted, that we are accepted. That we are blessed in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That we're seated there, that our position is secured and it's the highest of all positions that can be held in all of the universe. That we are in Christ And Paul, for two chapters, has been just developing and building upon this concept of who we are and what we have as those that are in Christ. And then he undoes the obstacle, the obvious obstacle to the Gentile audience that is hearing and reading these things that, hey, wait a minute, Paul, I understand that this is probably true for a Jew, But we're Ephesians, we're Gentiles, we're not entitled to these promises that you're speaking of, enumerating. And so that is the tangent that Paul kind of got off on in the first 13 verses there of chapter 3, and he touched upon it in the second half of chapter 2 a little bit, that there is no longer a distinction or a separation between Jew and Gentile. But in the person of Christ, the two have been made one. The wall is broken down and there is no longer that distinction. And now anyone who comes to Jesus Christ by faith is invited and accepted and adopted and chosen and blessed and seated in heavenly places that are in Christ. And so for that cause, for the cause of all that's been provided for us, Paul says... I now bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He closes out chapter 3, and really this whole section of the book of Ephesians, by praying for the Ephesian church, that they would in fact receive and also enjoy the blessing that God has provided for humankind in Jesus Christ. Now this is the second time that Paul is going to pray for the Ephesian Christians, even in this first three chapters of the epistle. It's the second recorded prayer of Paul in this epistle already. You recall back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul prayed for them there as he was explaining to them the things that are theirs in Christ. And his prayer back in chapter 1, essentially, was that they would understand the things that are theirs in Christ. That somehow their understanding would be opened and that they would be able to, in some way, just intellectually grasp the things that he would be saying to them. So in chapter 1, it's a prayer for understanding. But here, as he closes out in chapter 3, it's not a prayer for understanding, but rather it's a prayer that they would experience what they have in Christ. And there's a big difference between the two things of simply just understanding something which happens in the mind, which may or may not affect the life, and when you experience something and you own it and it is an effect upon who you are in the way that you live. And so Paul's prayer as he closes out this section is that they wouldn't just understand it mentally, but that they would experience it in reality. That's Paul's prayer as he you know goes into this last little bit here of you know seven verses or so now it does us good to study the prayer that paul prays for them really for two reasons first of all as we look at what paul prayed for that church it helps us to first of all understand what god wants to do in our lives personally because if this prayer this first of all this epistle was written to gentile christians and then this prayer was that they would be experiencing the things that were shared, then certainly if it's recorded on the pages of Scripture, then God desires that we should have the same experience that Paul was praying the Ephesians would have. And so as we study this prayer, it helps us to understand what God desires to do within our lives. See, also, the second thing that we see from this prayer is that it helps us to know how to pray for others. I have a real easy time when it comes to praying for myself. I'm really in tune with what I need. I'm in tune with what I want, what I'd like to see happen. I'm in tune with where I'm at in life, where I've been, and hopefully where I'm going, you know. And so it's very easy when I kneel down to pray for myself. But when I pray for someone else, I find I run into a bit of a challenge. Because I don't know you perhaps all that well. Maybe on the outside I can explain your personality a little bit or describe your Christianity. But I don't really know where you're at on the inside or what it is that God wants to do within your life. And so I find that when I seek to pray for someone else, my prayers get, well, oftentimes I just don't know how to pray for others. But as I hear Paul and eavesdrop, essentially, on the prayer that he is offering for a group of Christians, it helps me to know how to pray for Christians. What is going to be effective in impacting in our pursuit to pray for others? And so, as we see this, we'll also glean that. We'll understand how we can effectively pray for other people. Now, before we dissect the actual prayer that Paul prayed, which is really the exciting part of this Bible study, there are a few effective prayer principles that we can apply from Paul's letter. There's things that we can glean here and understand that will help us to know how to pray. And the first thing that we notice concerning Paul's prayer as it applies to our own prayer lives is that Paul prayed, and if you're taking notes you can write this down, according to revealed truth. He prayed according to revealed truth. Notice there again with me in verse 14. He says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's praying according to truth that had been previously revealed. Now granted, Paul was the one who revealed that truth. But you and I don't have the authority to write scripture like Paul did. So he's the only one that can say it in that context for this cause because of what I already said. But we know as those that are studying this that he's praying according to the word of God. He's praying according to the revealed will of God. And if there's anything that's going to give us more weight or authority or effectiveness in our prayer lives, it's when we pray according to what we know God already wants to do. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, John records and he says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. See, when we pray according to what we know God wants, according to His will, the Bible says that we have the authority to believe as though it is done. If we know that it's His will, then we know He hears us, and if He hears us, we know that we have the things that we've asked. So when we pray according to revealed truth, it gives us assurance that God will hear and He will do the things that we're asking. People pray for ridiculous things. God, I pray that you would just make me a gazillionaire. God, I pray. And they they pray these things, but there's absolutely no biblical foundation for them to pray those prayers. And so they say, well, God's not answering my prayers. Well, what kind of prayers are you praying? James said, you ask, but you have not, because you ask amiss, that you might consume it on yourselves. That The motivation behind your prayer isn't at all what God wants for your life or for anybody else, but you're just simply seeking to elevate your own position, your own status, your own thing. And, and, And James tells us, you know, you shouldn't be surprised if God ignores that prayer. But when we pray according to what we know God wants to do in our lives or through our lives or for someone else, then our prayer lives take off and we begin to see God move in powerful ways. We learn from this prayer that if we pray according to revealed truth, that our prayers will carry much weight. Paul shows us that. Pray the word of God. One of my favorite things to do is to just take one of the epistles like Colossians or Philippians and just pray through it One phrase or one line sometimes one word at a time and as I read it just pray it in Yes, Lord do that in me do that in in others do that in Georgia Lord do that in the kids That we might know you that we might have a a relationship with you that it might be real in our lives And it's such a powerful thing. You feel like you're really connecting The second thing we observe about Paul's prayer is also his posture Again, look at verse 14. He says, For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he is not saying here, and I am not saying to you, that in order for you to be effective in your conversation with God, that you need to assume a posture of bended knee. That's not what I'm saying to you here. What I'm pointing out to you is really an attitude of the heart. As you look through the pages of Scripture and you observe the various ways that people prayed, some of them, well, Abraham, it says that he stood before the Lord. It wasn't in a position of kneeling with his eyes closed, but he was standing there and he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. It tells us that David sat before the Lord and offered a prayer of thanksgiving when he was informed about what God was going to do with his descendants. We see the servant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 24 walking as he prayed. And the Bible tells us that he wasn't even speaking with his mouth, that his prayer was being offered mentally, silently. And yet God heard and answered the prayer that was offered in silence while a man was simply just walking along. Hezekiah, we're told, fell on his face before the Lord and cried out to him in desperation. And God heard the prayer of Hezekiah. And we read of Daniel, whose custom, the Bible tells us, was three times a day he would open his window towards Jerusalem and he would pray. And so as we read the Bible, we see that there any posture physically is acceptable, but the one thing that is mandatory is the posture of our hearts. Is that we recognize and realize who it is that we're talking to. We're talking to God. Now, if you were given an audience with, you know, the President of the United States, or with somebody of political significance or, you know, worldly stature, you would address them with reverence, with respect, you know? You would recognize who it is that you're speaking to. How much more when we're talking to our holy God, Even the angels, it says, that they use two of their wings to cover their face and two of their wings to cover their bodies and use only two of their wings to fly. So concerned are they that they might distract in some way from the glory of whom they're speaking to. And the attitude of our heart when we pray must be one of reverence that we recognize and understand who it is we're speaking to. We're talking to the God of the universe. And so the Bible says that we can come boldly before his presence, and we are invited to do that. But the Bible is also very clear that we are to come humbly, recognizing who it is that we're speaking to and understanding who we are. Nothing. David said, you consider our frame, you know that we are but dust. We are as nothing before you, as a vapor that vanishes away. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. And so Paul saying here, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, Jew and Gentile alike, no longer a distinction, no separation, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The third thing about Paul's prayer that gives me great comfort is the length of it. Many times I am distracted from praying for someone else because I think that I simply just don't have the time. Because if I really want to connect with God on behalf of someone else, then it's going to require a a, a good blocked out period of time where I'm going to have to, you know, sit and whatever. No, no, no. Listen, you can read the prayer that Paul prays for these people slowly and you could do it in under a minute. It's just a short little prayer, and yet it's probably one of the most powerful and impacting prayers that's ever been offered on behalf of someone else. It's not how much or how long or how many words that you speak when it is that you pray for someone else. It's just doing it. Jesus said, when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites who think that they're going to be heard for their much speaking or because of their vain repetitions. But just speak. Speak simply. You can speak briefly, and the prayer that's offered will be effective. James holds up the prayer of Elijah as an example of how we should pray. The prayer that he's referencing is all of ten words. It isn't about how long the prayer is or how eloquent you are. It's just a matter of praying, of doing it. And so, Paul's prayer, it's according to revealed truth, He's in a posture of humility and it's just brief. It's something that's offered in simplicity and yet it's impacting. Well, what is it that Paul prays for the Ephesians? Basically, his petition or his supplication that he's offering on their behalf is three things. He asks God that he would do three things in their life. First of all, stability. Second of all, intimacy. And third of all, capacity and then he closes with a simple benediction and closes out the section you know as he goes into a new thing when we get into chapter 4 but in verse 16 we see the first thing that Paul asked God to do for this group of people and that is that he would give them stability look with me at verse 16 he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit In the inner man. Now, this is the seventh time since the start of chapter one that the Apostle Paul has used the word riches. Now, typically, our concept of riches is gold or currency or merchandise of some fashion or status or, you know, a house on the the bluff or, you know, waterfront or whatever. You know, that's kind of our concept when we hear the word riches. Those are the types of thoughts that go through our mind. It's a tangible and physical type of thing. Now, when we think of riches, and then we think of God in our, you know, finite capacity and the way that we are, when we put those two things together, riches, bling, you know, and God, and you put those two things in the same category, now, you're talking about an unlimited supply of resources, and opportunity, and advantages and you know invincibility and immunity from problems and you just think man god he's got all the resources in heaven and earth and and so everything the riches of god we think and we start to get excited like daddy warbucks you know or something is our god and that is true however the riches or the treasures of god are not physical commodities outwardly that we would think of but rather they are invisible qualities that work inwardly within our lives. It's a completely different context or dynamic when you're speaking about the riches of God versus the commodities or the currencies of men. Now, in this first petition that Paul prays, as he asks that the Spirit of God would strengthen them with might in their inner man, you find three things. You find that there is a doer. It is the spirit of the invisible God that Paul is asking that he would do something. There is, second of all, a work that's to be done. He asks that they would be strengthened with might, that the spirit of God would strengthen them with might. And then third of all, there is a place where the work is to be done, and that is in the inner man, or in the deepest part of the being. So there is a doer, a work, and a place. The spirit of God strengthening energizing, stabilizing within the inner life or the deepest part of the life of a person who calls themselves a Christian. The first verses of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And it tells us this in verse 2. It says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The word moved that's used there in the Hebrew language, it's a word that means that he brooded. If you've ever had chickens or seen chickens and you've seen a a, a mother hen brooding over her eggs or over her young after they're hatched, a mother hen will just kind of sit there and produce heat and then kind of just shake a little bit flutter, sort of. And it's the same idea when it talks about how the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, that that there was darkness, there was a formless void, that the vast expanse of all that existed after verse 1 was just a shrouded darkness, an undefinable mass, but it says that the Spirit of God brooded, or energized, or strengthened, hovered over the face of the deep. And there was something that was happening, there was something preparatory, there was a buzz, there was something that was growing, there was an energy that was being instilled in the chaos of what existed in that time, that was preparing it for when God, in verse 3, would say, it says, And God said, let there be light. And it says, boom, there was light. In the Hebrew, it's more emphatic. It says, God said, light be And light was. That God spoke and there was a response. There was something that happened. There was activity and action in response to the power of God. But it started with the Spirit of God hovering, brooding, strengthening the formless void that had existed previously. Filling it with divine energy and preparing it for when it would be transformed. Darkened chaos was about to become A stable, ordered environment. As the word of God would be spoken into it. The picture here that we have in Ephesians, as Paul prays for them, is not that the Spirit would move upon the face of the waters, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1. But that the Spirit of God would move within the heart and the souls of men, and there would be a strengthening That there would be a brooding, that there would be an energizing, a growing, something that inside the heart of man would be welling up, that there would be an energy, an expectancy, that something big, something real, something eternal is about to take place. Something of epic and divine proportions. Now our lives prior to when we come to Christ, our lives can be defined as a formless void. We lack purpose. There's chaos, really. If you look at it from earthly perspective, you know, maybe you have a job, you're born in a normal neighborhood, you have an education, and you're going through. But if you look at it from the big picture, the life of an unbeliever, Paul says that they're blind. They're alienated from the life of God. They're essentially dead, lost in their trespasses and sins. It's nothing but chaos. There's a formless void, a darkness A chaotic mass. That's all that exists in the heart of someone that doesn't know Christ, that hasn't experienced his love, his life, his light. But what Paul is praying is that the Spirit of God would move into the innermost being of these people, and that he would brood, that he would energize, that he would strengthen them, that he would stabilize them. In Genesis... It's a picture of God preparing a dwelling place for man. But in Ephesians, it's a picture of the Spirit preparing a dwelling place in man for God. See, when God hovered over the face of the deep, he was preparing a place where man would live. But as the Spirit of God moves into the heart of man, he's preparing a dwelling place, not for man, but for himself. A place where God will live. And so Paul prays and he says that the Spirit would prepare a dwelling place in you. That there would be a strengthening. You'd be strengthened with might in the inner man. Notice that at at the end of verse 16. He says, the inner man. That the place where the Spirit is going to do this work. This is of the utmost importance. Because the work of God within the heart of any person. Any person that comes to Christ, that knows Christ. The work of God within our lives always starts internally. I, I think of, you know, in the summertime, uh, you know, we we have kids and they're getting involved in sports. And I remember it wasn't that long ago for me, you know, going and playing soccer in the summertime. And, and I, I used to love watching how they would paint the, the, the lines for the soccer fields in the grass. And they had that thing that looked like a lawnmower and they'd turn the spray paint can upside down. And they'd, they'd basically paint lines in a big field and turn it into, you know, a, a sports arena, And and we'd watch, because we would play games each week, and the first week, man, those those lines were defined. They were bright. You know, the grass was painted, it was clear, it was bright, it was distinct. But as the weeks would pass, and the season would go on, those lines would begin to fade, and before long, what was once a clearly distinct white line painted upon the grass, again, it was green. Why? Because the natural color of the grass is green, and as it's left alone... What's on the inside of it, what's written in the registry of what it is, is green. And so therefore, that paint that was put upon it physically can only last so long before what's on the inside actually comes on the outside. Men will cut down a tree and they'll put it through a mill and then they'll nail it to the side of a house and paint it a beautiful color. And what was once a tree standing upon the ground is now cut and ordered into this place upon a house where it's sided and painted. But if it's left alone over time, a number of years pass and the paint begins to peel away and the natural wood grain that's underneath begins to become exposed. Why? Because that's what it is in its deepest place. And whatever anything is in its deepest place, that's what it ultimately is. No matter how you paint it, or dress it, or train it, or do anything else you want, applying energy to try to make it look like something else, whatever it is in the deepest part, that's what it is. Now, the difference between religion, and there's no shortage of religion within this world. You can basically get a catalog and take your pick. And you can even apply the word religion to Christianity if you want, and you can live a religious Christian life. But the problem with religion is that the best it can ever do is modify our behavior and cause us to appear to be something in the eyes of someone else. But religion can in no way change what we are on the inside. We are what we are, just like that blade of grass or that wood grain painted Whatever it is on the inside is ultimately going to come out. And no matter who you are or what religious facade you put on, you can hold it up maybe for a month or a year or even a bunch of years. But eventually what's on the inside is going to come out. And all you can do is add more religion, more ritual to try to cover it up and make it look like it's not there. But internally, you know that you still struggle with the same sins, the same struggles, the same habits, the same fears, the same torments that you always did. Because religion can never change what you are on the inside. Now Christianity, at least biblical Christianity, is different. Because God never tells us to modify our behavior in hopes that we can appear to be something that we're not. But rather what he tells us is that I am going to send my spirit into your inner man. And I am going to begin a transforming work within you. Not a reforming work. A transforming work within your life. And I'm going to change the registry, the makeup of who you are. I'm going to change your desires and your lifestyle. Not by telling you what you should do. But by rewiring the desires and the way you think. Renewing your mind and taking what was there and replacing it with my word, and what you once were will die and be there no more, and I will create in you a new man that's after the likeness of my son, Christ. And see, the work that God does within our heart, it's real, it's deep, it, it changes us, you see. Sometimes people will say to us as Christians, well, you know, it's New Year's Eve, and we're all going out. You can't go out but we're all going to go out. Is it, can we, you, what do you want to do? I mean, I look at them and I say, it's funny, you know, you're looking at me like I want to do something that I can't do. But what you don't realize is that I don't want to. Because it's been changed within me. It isn't that I have these desires and I'm like, oh God, what am I going to do? It's New Year's Eve. I'm going to shut the doors and turn off the lights and make everybody think that we're awake. I don't no, 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 listen, it's a new thing. I was at the gym and, and this, this this shocked me. I was at the gym and I was running on the treadmill uh and, and, and there's all these TVs, you know. And I usually have headphones on or I get one of those treadmills that you have your own TV and I can watch Sports Center or something, you know. But I was looking and in the peripheral vision there was this giant screen over there and there was a man kissing a woman on the screen. And I have seen men kiss women. That's just normal. You see that all the time. I mean, you watch TV commercials, you see. And, and there was something that happened that has never happened to me before when I saw that. I was actually disgusted. And it shocked me so much that I noticed it. I was like, what? That's weird, you know. That's never bothered me before just to see a man kiss a woman. But what I realized is that he's doing something in my life. He's changing me from the inside out. See, because there was a time when I'll go, oh, what's going on over there? what else is he going to do? You know, and and, and it would draw me in. There would be an allurement to it. But I saw it and I thought immediately, I thought, why would I want to watch some guy kissing some woman? It, It disgusted me. And I thought, wow, Lord, you're doing work within my life. And see, the work that God does within our life, it doesn't come from the outside and change our behavior, but it goes on the inside and it changes who we are. And it takes a whole lot longer than behavior modification. And it's an unconventional method by which God does it, because we don't understand even how he does it. But I will tell you this, that when God changes a life, it is changed forever. Because he knows how to accomplish what he desires to do within our lives. So the Spirit of God in the life of a believer takes the formless chaos of what we were, and then He strengthens and orders it, bringing peace and stability. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And if you want to pray according to the will of God, this one, you could take it and you could pray it every day. And God will do it because He tells us it's His will. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, Make you perfect. The word perfect means complete or mature. It doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. It's a King James word. It means complete. Establish, strengthen, and settle you. When I hear those words, I say, God, please. That's so what I long for. I just want to be established, strengthened, and settled. It's the will of God for our lives. And Paul here prays for the Ephesians that the Spirit of God in their innermost being, would strengthen them to the end that they would be established or stable. The second thing that Paul praises there in verse 17, and that is intimacy. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The word dwell that Paul uses there in the first part of that verse, when he says that Christ would dwell in your hearts, in the Greek it's a word that means that he would feel at home in your hearts. It's two words in the Greek and it means that he would be in there but that he would be at rest in there, that he would be at rest in your heart, that he would feel at home within your heart. A number of years ago, a man named Robert Boyd Munger wrote a book called My Heart Christ's Home. And he took the idea as though Jesus was coming to your house and knocking on your door and he was actually coming for a visit. And, and, you know, Jesus is there, and so you let him inside your house, and he begins to walk around in your house and look at the DVDs that you have, you know, there, and see the magazines that are on your coffee table and the pictures that are hung up on your wall. And, you know, and, and he just starts to hang out in your house a little bit. But he takes this premise of how we invite Jesus to come into our hearts. He says, I stand at the door and knock, speaking of our hearts. And now he comes and he lives inside of our hearts. And he begins to expand upon this whole concept of Jesus moving into our lives, moving into our hearts as though he was moving into our house. Let me read you just a short little paragraph from his book. It says that he walked with me and looked around at the books in the bookcase, the magazines on the table, the pictures on the walls. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had not felt bad about this room before. But now that he was there with me, looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books on the shelves, and it's speaking of on his, in his mind, you know. Books on the shelves. His eyes were too pure to look at. On the table were a few magazines that a Christian had no business reading. As for the pictures on the walls, that is the imaginations and thoughts of my mind, some of these were shameful. It's a great little book. We have about four copies in the bookstore, so you can all run there right after. And it, t- it takes about ten minutes to read. It's just a tiny little booklet, but the truth of it is so impacting. It's so powerful. The fact is that when we come to Christ, we are essentially inviting Him to come and live within our hearts. By calling him Lord, by saying, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you, we are taking the keys and we are saying, I am transferring ownership of my life, my heart, to you. This is now your home. It's not my home that you're a guest in. This is your home, and essentially, I am a guest within it. Now, never in the history of humanity has there ever been a time when Jesus moves into the heart of the human and says, wow, I love what you've done with the place. (laughs) Never. It has never happened ever in the history of man that Jesus moves in and he's comfortable with what he sees there. But listen, this is his desire. His desire is that he would take what we give him, the keys to our heart, residency within our hearts, and that he would make it a place where he is comfortable to live inside. He doesn't put the responsibility upon us. He says, look, I have the keys, I own the house, and so I'm going to rearrange some things. And he gently, you know, asks our permission and works with us, you know, patiently. But let me ask you, last time you bought a house, or if you've ever bought a house or a place to live, did you allow the previous owner to decorate it the way he wanted would you ever, you know, buy a house and get the keys and say, hey, do you mind just picking out my furniture and the paint that's on my walls and my entertainment system and all the rest of it? You wouldn't do that because when it's your home, you want to make it yours. And so we make our heart Christ's home and what He desires is that we allow Him to make those changes within our lives so that our hearts, our minds, our bodies are a place where he is comfortable or at home, where he can put his feet up and relax, where there's things that are pure, where he's not ashamed to live within us. Our part is to cooperate. Is that when his eyes look at something that's in our mind or affection that's in our heart or something that we're holding on to, that he, we know that he wouldn't want that there. That we say, yes, Lord. That we not say, no, 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 this is mine. You can have everything else, but I'm keeping this. You can have every room in the house, but that one with the lock on it, that one's mine. As long as there's a room with a lock on it, Jesus will never be at home within that heart. Now, if we resist, and we hold on to things, and not let him have his access, then what we're doing is that we are hindering what it is that he wants to do within us. What does he want to do within us? Read on. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Here it is. Ready? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes that when he is allowed to do his work within us and rearrange and adjust and make himself at home within us, the result for us is that we get to experience the fullness of his love. That we become rooted and grounded in it. That we would experience his love and that we'd experience intimacy with him. That's his desire. That's what he wants for us. Notice with me that the substance Of the experience that Paul is praying for. Is love. And. That the place where it is experienced. Is the heart. And. That love within the heart. Is to be the root and the foundation. Of the Christian life. And. That the one who reveals it. Is Christ. Love within the heart. Is where we're to be rooted. And established in our Christian life. And only Christ can make that happen. Experiences other than Christ, religious epiphanies, knowledge of the Bible, none of those things are to be the root or the cause or the effect of our experiencing the love of Christ. Only Jesus Christ can cause us to be rooted and grounded in love. Sadly, there are many Christians that are rooted and grounded in their Christian experience in things other than the love of Christ. There are some that are rooted and grounded in knowledge. They know an awful lot about the Bible. They've achieved an intellectual ascent into theological truth. They know scripture and doctrine. They're able to teach it and maybe to share it with others. They can preach it and eloquently describe the finer points of the Christian faith. But for as much as they are established perhaps in their mind... What they lack is the personal experience of knowing the love of Christ in reality within their hearts and within their lives. They have knowledge, but they don't know his love. Look at verse 19, and there it says that the love of Christ passes knowledge. It goes deeper. It's more real. It's authentic. It's sincere. Knowledge and doctrine, it's plastic. It's religious. It it, it is something, but it's Not the substance. The substance is Christ. And more perfectly, the love of Christ. So how is the love of Christ experienced in the heart of a man or a woman? How do we experience Christ's love? Notice the four words that are used to describe it. He says, the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. He's not simply being poetic when he uses those words and try to say, if you could understand this vast and glorious concept. It's not poetic, although it's poetic, but that's not his intention. He's not just trying to be clever, as some have stated, and talk about, you know, well, this is a picture of the cross, you know, from the width and breadth, the length, and then the height and the depth, you know, speaking of the cross beam and the vertical part of the cross where Jesus died, that this is a demonstration. That's not it either, although it's a great picture. But all four of these terms of measurement imply something. See, Why does it need to be width and length and depth and height? Because that's where it finds its its purpose or its expression or its understanding. See, the width of God's love, width in the Bible or the spreading of something, the breadth of something, usually speaks of sin. Sin, in the Bible, is described as leprosy in the Old Testament, or a spreading plague, because sin is something that spreads. It starts small, but it spreads out, and it's all-consuming. It it knows no bounds. It has no end. In the New Testament, sin is described as leaven, or yeast, which a little bit goes in, and it spreads throughout. It's all-consuming. It never ends. In this concept, you can follow it through the Bible that sin is something that just spreads out and, and it contaminates. One sin that started in one man, Adam, has turned into what we know as this iniquitous black hole of this world that we're living in today because sin spreads out. But see, the love of Christ is wider than the width that sin could ever go. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 12, it written here somewhere oh yes it says that he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west and that he remembers it no more he didn't say the north and the south because the north only goes north until you hit the north pole it has a limitation south only goes south until you start going north again but east and west are eternal you can go east forever you can go west forever and he says that that's what he's done with our sin. He has spread his love over us to the point that our sin is contained. And he's washed it away. And see, someone who's experienced that, not someone who just knows it. Oh, it's a fact. You know, yeah, I was a sinner, but uh, you know, I'm saved by the grace of God. No, but, but listen, when you've experienced it, When you have come under the conviction of the Holy Ghost and your sin has been put face to face with what you are and you understand what it implies and where it will end you, and then you realize that because God so loved you that when you were his enemy, at the point when you never deserved it, he was willing to spread out his arms and shed his blood so that your sin could be washed away. The Lord laid upon Him the iniquity of us all He became sin who knew no sin That we might become the righteousness of God Even in Him And when you experience that The expression of love That is birthed within our hearts It's real And so the width Now I don't have time to talk about the breadth Or the length and the depth and the height But you can meditate on that and go for But realize The experience of the love of Christ Within our heart nearness to him intimacy is all that matters once you realize that that's the source and the substance of all that we are or all that we will ever be the thing that will make heaven heaven is the realization of his love the thing that no eye has seen or ear has heard or that has ever entered into the heart of man that we can't even conceive is the eternal vastness of the ocean of his love that will never be exhausted or fully understood. It passes knowledge, he says in verse 19. And it's that love of Christ that draws us. The love of Christ is why you're sitting here tonight, whether you know it or not. It's the love of Christ. It's not the law of Christ. It's not the word of Christ, although it's powerful, impacting. It's the love of Christ that changes lives. And it's the experience of it that will be the root and foundation of fruitfulness within our Christian lives. And our relationship with Him. And so Paul prays that they would have intimacy and finally capacity. In verse 19, he finishes by saying that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's third petition is not that the Spirit would strengthen or that the Son would abide or dwell within them but that the Father himself would satisfy them fully. Literally, that you would be filled to capacity with the life of God. Now, there is no one in this building, or in fact, even on this planet, that can say that that is true of themselves. Because the incredible thing about this God that we serve is that his capacity is incomprehensible you can never be filled to capacity. Because as soon as you begin to be filled to your capacity, He deepens you so that you can experience more of Him. And we will never, this is something that you can pray and ask God to do in your life every day from now until forever. Because you will never be able to contain. The Bible says that the heaven of heavens can't contain Him. Much less He's made His dwelling with human flesh. And yet he's given us the privilege that as we allow his spirit to move within us, as we allow his son to make adjustments and become at home within our heart, the capacity and our ability to enjoy him and to be filled and satisfied by him, it just grows and grows. And Paul prays that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And the more we yield and the more we ask, the more he does. In verse 20, he gives his benediction, and I love this. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Notice with me there in verse 20 what Paul says about God's ability to perform these things that Paul is praying. He essentially says four things in one sentence. He says to them, first of all, if you just skip a few words there in verse 20, and you'll probably have to look at the screen because I know most of you are NIV positive. Um, I mean, you use the NIV and... uh, you know, this this is I don't even I didn't even look to see if it works in the NIV, but it does work in the King James. Listen to this it says, Now unto him that is able to do all that we ask or think. But wait a minute, Paul adds to that. He says, Now unto him that is able to do above all that we ask or think. Then he adds to that. Now unto him that is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then he adds to that. And he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Powerful, isn't it? And when you look at it that way to realize, yeah, he's able. Remember in our last study, last time two weeks ago, when we talked about this and we we said, yeah, you know, we, we don't really doubt God's ability. We doubt his willingness. Well, Paul has so obliterated the concept that God is unwilling, that here he has to emphasize that God is able. He's willing. We know that. And he says that he is able. He can do these things within our lives. This is not some theological concept that is reserved for those few people that actually make it to that point in their Christian life that they can experience it but that God is able to do these things within you. He is able to strengthen you with might by His Spirit in the inner man. He is able to reveal the love of Christ within your heart in such a real and living way that you experience intimacy with Christ. And He is able to fill and satisfy your life in such a way that you are looking for nothing else other than what He can do. And God is able to do it exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or what we can even think or imagine. The incredible thing is that this is God's will. That He desires to do this within our lives. As we close, and Brad, you can come, but you're probably going to stand here for three minutes. When we look at people outwardly, we see them smile. I think of how I walk around here on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night and just talk with people, casually interact, and people smile. People laugh. People are lighthearted. They tell jokes. And and, and there's an outwardness to our relationship. And we look at each other and we say, hey, they're doing all right. You know, everything's going well in their life. Look, they have a a, a pleasant demeanor, you know, and things just seem to be going all right for them. But many times, if you can get past what's there on the outside, you know, the smiling face or the the lighthearted joke or the lighthearted small talk of conversation, underneath, there's problems. People... Right here in this building, there's problems with your marriage and with your relationships. You have problems with your children, directions you see them going and things happening, conflicts in your home that are tearing maybe at you, eating away, thinking, how is this going to turn? This is going in such a bad direction. People having problems within their families, extended families, financial struggles and burdens. People having problems with their jobs, or maybe they don't have a job people that have health issues that maybe no one else knows about or fears of something happening. Listen, it was no different in Paul's day with the church that he's writing with here at Ephesus. They were real people just like us. They had real problems, real issues, real things that they were struggling with. And here, here's Paul and he's praying for them that they would experience the riches of Christ, the riches of God. And you would think that Paul would pray, hey, according to his riches, I pray that all your problems would go away. What? Hey, if he is that exceeding abundantly able to do above all that we ask or even think, according to his riches and glory, then hey, Paul, would you please pray for my marriage? Pray for my job situation? Pray for our finances? Pray for our family? But it's interesting, Paul doesn't pray for any of that. What does he pray? That they'd be empowered by the Spirit's presence. That they would be rooted and grounded in the Son's love. That they would be satisfied by the Father's fullness. What gives? Can I tell you a secret? It's the greatest secret in the whole universe, although many of you probably won't believe me. Is that the riches of God, the treasures of God, are not what He gives us. Or what He does for us. Even what he does in us None of those things are the riches of God The riches of God Is God himself He is the treasure Notice it's the spirit that strengthens you The son that is rooted and grounded Settled at home within you The father that satisfied you The spirit, the son, the father The triune God dwelling within you That is the treasure of God That is the riches, the most valuable thing that you can possess in all of the universe isn't a thing or a blessing or a changed circumstance or situation. It's God. And He has been made available to you. He is yours. He's the treasure. This is the message of the whole Bible. The Bible says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. The glory of the Garden of Eden was not the trees that were there or what Adam got to do in it, the responsibilities that he had. The glory of the Garden was that Adam got to walk with God day by day. The thing that Adam looked forward to in his pre-fallen state was not the state of the rose bush and how well it was producing. But in Adam's mind, oh, I get to walk with him today. Today, I get to experience fellowship with my creator, the one who made me. Abraham was told by God himself, I am your exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, yeah, I know, Lord. But what are you going to give me, seeing that I go childless in the air of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham, you don't get it. It's not what I'm going to do for you. It's not your future that you need to be concerned about in an earthly sense. I am your reward. Abraham learned the lesson because some 30 years later, he was willing to offer his son up to God. God, there is no blessing. There is no circumstance, no situation, nothing in this earthly finite life that can compare with just knowing you, walking with you, living before you. To Moses, God said, I am that I am. David came to a point in his life when he said, you are my portion in this life. All that he had, he was the king of Israel. He was blessed on every side, prospered in every way. And yet he could look at it all and say, God, you are my portion in this life. It's you. You're the one that I seek, the one that I need. We equate riches, or blessing rather, with material wealth and physical possessions. But the real wealth, the real treasure, is God himself. Blessings apart from God don't satisfy. That thing that you're seeking, God, fix my marriage. God, fix my child. God, give me a child. God, fix this job or give me a job. Oh, Lord, if I could just get the house, if I could just get my ducks in a row, Lord, if you would just provide. Listen, can I tell you a secret? It won't satisfy because once you get the thing that you're seeking to obtain from God you will immediately be dissatisfied because all that's going to be revealed is the next problem in your life the next area that needs God's work within it those things don't satisfy but when God himself becomes your treasure when he becomes your reward then all of a sudden the circumstances irrelevant don't matter though they be Grave, though they be dark. Paul's prayer, my prayer for you, our prayer tonight, is that we would be strengthened with might in the inner man. That we would be rooted and grounded in the Son's love. That we could be satisfied by the Father's fullness. Lord, we ask as we're here in this place, that you would make these things real within us. That we would know your love, know your truth. And that we would experience the true riches of God. I pray for every person here, every circumstance, every burden, every tear. I pray that tonight, Lord, they would find refuge in you. That you would be their hope, their shield, their salvation. And that you'd show yourself strong within their lives. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand.